The Ascent of Board Games is a podcast in which we discuss the history and evolution of board game mechanics, concepts, and themes from the dawn of history to today's newest releases. We talk, we laugh, we pick on each other, and we occasionally get things wrong. But we hope to provide both entertainment and education to today's discerning podcast listener, you. Welcome, everybody, to episode 25 of the Ascent of Board Games. I am Brian, your very talky host, joined by the usual assortment of folks. I just realized I'm trying to throw to an intro and we're not sitting in the same place, so I don't know what order people want to introduce themselves in. So everybody talk at once. I love talking. I'm Joe. I'm Frank. I don't enjoy talking, but I think I'm going to be doing a lot of it. Yes, you are. And I'm Mike. That means I don't have to talk over anybody. I'm Jason. Welcome back, everybody. This is the next in our continuing series of A, podcasts about the history and origin and development of popular game types, and B, podcasts recorded in the middle of a pandemic so that we're all in separate places and we can't really look at each other and make all those clever hand signals as far as what we're doing next. So we're just kind of winging it here, but hopefully it'll sound okay for you guys. This month, we are going back to one of the oldest and broadest categories of games. We're talking about racing games. And that's basically one of humanity's oldest forms of competition. Right after I can beat you to death and steal your food, probably came, hey, I bet I can get to the top of that hill before you can. So it was one of the very first things we know about that was simulated in games, and not surprisingly, it has an extremely long history. In fact, I think this first one here may be the oldest game we've talked about on the show at all. Well, it's pretty much the oldest of which there's decent documentation. I spent some time looking for any reference to earlier, earlier games for racing games. There are, basically in Neolithic sites, that's between 4,000 and 10,000 BC, they have playing pieces, walnut shells, occasional, you know, groups of polished stones, and they have little pits or sticks, maybe some reeds cut in half, used like binary dice, that they're pretty sure were used for racing games, but they could never find a complete set to know if that was really a game or whether it was some kind of counting tool or what. So really, when we talk about the first game, it's the first game with decent documentation. Right. Evidence to support that this was in fact a game as opposed to other activities Honestly, when we get as far back as this first game, it's surprising how many of these early, early games are still a thing. Because, like, in doing research for this one in particular, I also found evidence of, like, Mancala being one of the earliest games ever recorded. And it's like, damn, we still play that game today. Yes, indeed. So, without further ado, that first game is Senate, which was released... Y'all can't see my finger quotes there. Circa 3500 BCE? Sadly, we don't have a credited publisher or designer. It was probably Reiner Knizia. Yeah, uh, probably. I mean, yeah. I mean, back in those days, nobody got credits. Anyway, this is an uh, ancient Egyptian game that has a relatively interesting history. They think that one of the reasons that Senate spread throughout the Egyptian and really the Mediterranean area is because of religion, which I thought was kind of interesting. They hypothesized that this game might have been used to teach religious values, and that just kind of caught on. And then when it went from Egypt to other cultures, they just kind of dropped the religion part of it, which I thought was interesting. 
I don't know how to play Senate, so I really don't know <laughs> well, <laughs> what to, to say about what's going anyone. on with it. <laughs> to be fair, nobody knows exactly how to play Senate. There have been sort of reconstructions of the rules by archaeologists who have put together bits of commentary over thousands of years and said, well, we think it's something like this. Very broadly, it's a race game. You've got I think, five pieces per person. The general premise is that you're trying to guide your spirit to the afterlife. In a lot of the original boards, there's a lot of illustration and stuff. Your heart is being weighed for your goodness and that sort of thing. And honestly, for as long as the game was played, there were probably many, many variations on how the rules adapted over the centuries. Yeah. Now, one thing I do want to say is that, unfortunately all evidence points that this was just a roll and move because it did involve dice throwing sticks honestly how good could it have been <laughs> a lot of the elaborate pictures on the boards are tied to the book of the dead so they represent basically the passing into the underworld the afterlife all the 28 steps you had to go through with your heart weighed against a feather to see if you were allowed to pass into the underworld. Osiris, the various gods, the giant crocodile that would chase you, etc., are kind of all represented there. And while there are no rules, there are hieroglyphics and cartouches showing people playing it with trash talk. Yes, there are, <laughs> which is fascinating. Like, for example, from the tomb of Reshepte's, I will lift up three and two draftsmen in passing. It is in passing. I have made passing. Observe my three. <laughs> Damn. I can see that happening at a game table today. The best part is is he carved that into stone. Right? I, know. <laughs> I won this game so much, I want everyone for the rest of time to know. Another one is, it has lighted. You are happy, oh my heart, for I am causing you to see it taken away. <laughs> Replied is, it is from the back of the tongue that you speak, for passing belongs to me. <laughs> there is also a pretty famous painting, hieroglyph, whatever, of Queen Nefertiti playing Senate alone. You know what that means, Brian. <laughs> there was a solo variant. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Actually, that was Nefertari, not Nefertiti, close to the same time. But uh... That's fair. That definitely does say Queen Nefertari. It's fascinating that you can kind of track free time as you track games coming into existence and being invented. As human beings get more free time, they invent games to take up that free time. Yeah, and surprisingly, the uh, the ruling classes tend to be the places we see these pop up first, right? I was looking at an article about a student common. He had four separate boards that were discovered inside his tomb. Very, very elaborate. They're gorgeous. They're amazingly done. Very, very intricate. It's even more remarkable that these things are made of wood, and <laughs> they still exist in museums now. I mean, Jason, you think you're pimping out your games. Try being <laughs> King Tut. I would love to see T King Tutankhamun's uh, terraforming bars, is all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> There's actually a place on Facebook, and I think I may have linked to it before in the show notes. There's a guy who does modern versions of Senate and some of the other ancient games we are talking about. Just gorgeous inlaid wood. Oh, yeah. When the game structure itself is relatively simple, you can spend a lot of time making it pretty and fancy. I'll put that link in the show notes in case anybody has a ton of money and wants to do it on a roll and move game. That leads us into the oldest game that has a complete set of rules, which, again, unfortunately, we don't have a publisher or a designer, but this one was estimated... It's about 3000 BC. The Roll Game of Ur. It took us a little longer to find Ur, mostly because cuneiform was harder to crack. 
because mm-hmm. it's a strange, strange language. As a game, Ur is actually pretty decent. We had a copy that seems close to the current rules I found yesterday that we played as kids. It's like a mini backgammon. It's pretty short, focused. You go in the same direction, but you can capture each other, get like seven pieces. Most of the dice were either sticks or four-sided. Yeah, you got some four-sided dice going there. The board is oddly shaped. It's got two squarish or rectangular parts on either end with like a thin one space wide passage And a long shared path in the middle, which is where the, the game happens and where you can capture each other. These are definitely sounding like rules if they're not sounding sane. For example, if the astragals score two, which is the dice, they're apparently using sheep bones here. The swallow sits at the head of the rosette. Should it then land on a rosette, a woman will love those who linger in a tavern. Regarding their pack, well-being falls to them. If it does not land on the rosette, a woman will reject those who linger in a tavern. Regarding their pack, as a group, well-being will not fall to them. Wait, is, is this a paragraph game? <laughs> I don't know. I didn't I, land on the rosette. You were rejected at the tavern. You were scorned. Lose a turn. <laughs> yeah, I'm still trying to figure out a woman will love those who linger in a tavern. They don't really go into detail. Is what that, does that mean? Is that a metaphor? I think that's a point of strategy, right? Because if you're on the rosettes, you can't be taken. So maybe exactly. they're telling you, hey, here's a good strategy for this game. The woman's not one of the pieces. They list the pieces as a bird, raven, rooster, eagle, and swallow. There have certainly been suggestions that there's kind of a fortune-telling thing going on. Certain spaces will have things like, you will find a friend, or you will have fine beer. So maybe it's part of that? There's actually two rule sets, and one of the other rule sets gives you things that are closer to a fortune-teller. One who sits in a tavern, the beer vat will turn away, you will be powerful like lion, you will cut meat. And these seem to be on the backside of the same tablet. This almost sounds like a drinking game. Where, like, if you (laughs) land on the space, you pick up the thing and it's like, buy everybody a beer. (laughs) Yeah, on this space, you get fine beer. And on this space, you have to drink a shot of that nasty stuff they keep in back. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, party games also have a long and storied history, so... The British Museum has a very interesting video where Ivan Frankel who is the archaeologist who translated the rules, plays the game and kind of talks about all the rules and everything. So it's a very interesting video. When we get to Pachisi, it's slight variations played ultimately the same way since 1100 BC. This uses a kind of cross-shaped board, which is essentially a big circle, although it's presented as a big cross of squares. And you have four pawns and you roll dice to move your guys around, capture people, send them back to start if you land on them. That actually is very similar to the Royal Game of War, but it supports four people, and you started seeing weird things like having to roll certain number of dice to enter a new piece or to get a piece off the board. And with four people, you're getting a game which is actually somewhat complex because you have to worry about how far apart your guys are from the guy who's coming in behind you who can potentially capture your guys. But Cheesy, of course, is still played in India. I mean, we still played in the United States when I was growing up. I had a set. Oh, totally. Parcheesi would be the United States name for it. But also in Germany, it was known as Ludo. 
And they have slightly different rules, you know, different die numbers to come in, different number of spaces. And of course, during the 50s and 60s, this went crazy in the U.S., where you got sorry with cards instead of dice, trouble with the lovely and wonderful Pop-O-Matic. And that's the I only thing anyone remembers about <laughs> trouble is the Pop-O-Matic die. Then you got to Aggravation, which is a six-player version. But also, I've seen Aggravation boards carved, handmade for years and years back in the 60s and 70s. And Aggravation led to a game called Joker, Dog, and Dirty Balls, which is which is basically a cheesy Aggravation variant where you play in teams of two using cards. So it's a little like a partnership, sorry, but with a hand of cards and... It's a game. I'm really serious. In fact, Joker and Dog are very popular in Germany. You can play them on like Board Game Arena. It's enough that while the game seems to have gone through the RV communities in the American Southwest Mm -hmm. is where it originated, it's now played worldwide under just kind of a mix of generic names. One thing I read about Pachisi that I thought was pretty interesting is that there was an Indian ruler named Akbar the Great. His court was tiled in like red and white squares. The quote from the description is, It was here that Akbar and his courtiers played the game. Sixteen young slaves from the harem wearing the player's colors represented the pieces and moved to the squares according to the throw of the dice. It is said that the emperor took such a fancy to playing the game on this grand school that he had a court for Pachisi constructed in all his palaces. It's good to be the king. It really is. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Now we move on to the European side of things. The Royal Game of Goose. Basically, it is a single spiral track where you roll a die or two and you move to certain spaces. If you land on a space with a goose on it, you can move that same distance again. There are some small shortcuts or things that will push you back. If you land on a skull, you die and you have to start over. It is basically the epitome of roll good to win. This was a sensation. There were so many variations and rethemes of this for centuries going on. You thought Monopoly was bad with the number of variations that are out there. The Game of Goose is kind of insane. So two things. One, some of the variants of Game of Goose I've read require you to also put stakes. So everyone basically annies at the start of the game. And then landing on certain spaces will force you to add to your ante with the winner getting the pot. Also, there is a weird game called Mehit, which is Egyptian, going back to 3000 BC, which has these elaborate carved snake spirals which Mm -hmm. looked kind of similar to the Game of Goose board. But there was one particular board where the tail of the snake is a goose head. Interesting. Which was just weird. A couple years ago, Grolier Club, it's a bibliophile club in New York, the oldest one in the U.S., they did an exhibition specifically on Royal Game of Goose game boards because they're all about printing in this club. And uh, you can actually buy the book from the exhibition on Amazon. But the one that I desperately wanted to find, I found multiple references to it, but I never found a picture, was one that was based off of Richard Nixon. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. I really want to see this. Frank the Royal Nicholas. Game of Nixon. <laughs> so when you get to the Americas and they started publishing and printing all sorts of stuff during the 1850s, you got a game called The Mansion of Happiness, which describes the entire game in terms of morality as every space is some kind of moral lesson. So it's clearly designed to be played and taught to kids. But then immediately after it became one of the most popular ones, which was called the Checkered Game of Life, 
which mm-hmm. took place on a big checkerboard with details of life written in. And that was the first game published by Milton Bradley in the like yeah. the 1860s. Yeah, they did all right. Actually, there was a, a puzzle hunt I did recently that had a puzzle involving that game. It's a checkerboard style, and sort of like every other space is going to be, you know, temperance. And if you land on the temperance space, then you get to move to the prosperity space, which may be closer to your destination. But if you land on the gambling space, then you have to move to the poverty space. There were a lot of elements in this that tie into snakes and ladders, or shoots and ladders, as it was known in the United States, because we didn't want to expose children to snakes. It's actually based on an old Indian game called Moksha Patam. It's, again, kind of a roll and move with the added feature that if you land on a good space, you may get to move up. If you land on a bad space, you have to move back. Let's start talking about quote-unquote modern board games, and that games that we actually know, like the publisher and designer and stuff. So we have Formula One, which was released in 1962, published by Waddingtons, and designed by John Howart and Trevor Jones. So when you look at Formula One and Speed Circuit, this was designed for Waddingtons and Parker Brothers. It has the big, long, classic bifold box. I think it has a trifold board, which fits in that big, long game box. Your cars have speed, and you can only go up by so much speed per turn and only go down by so much speed. When you go around a corner, you have to check your speed against the corner. If you're going too fast, you have to roll a die and potentially take damage on your tires and brakes. You have to basically manage the damage you're taking around the course of the racetrack, because if you burn out your tires, forget it, you're dead burn out your brakes or engine, you're dead. The little dashboards, the steering wheel controls where you track your different stats are amazing. There's a very similar game called Speed Circuit, produced by 3M, that is incredibly well known. It's very, very close. And that you're managing tire and brake wear. You roll when you risk going around corners, but otherwise it's diceless move because you're setting your speed and you're moving exactly that many spaces. I think Speed Circuit added a drafting rule, so if you're behind someone, you can move one space if they move forward. But that's about it. I mean, they're designed to be pretty predictable, thinky car racing games. This is certainly not the first car racing game, but the first, I think, broadly successful one, and I think it really established a lot of the things that we are seeing in racing games still to today. The fact that you're managing your tires and brakes and you have more deliberate control over your movement rather than just rolling dice. This was definitely the predecessor of a lot of the ones we're going to talk about going forward. Were there pit stops in this? It looks like on the board there's like a pit area. Yeah, there are pit stops. Okay, so you can get some of those points back. Correct. And choose whether to pit or not. The pit was also a risk, right? Because you could lose a turn there depending on oh, the Oh, totally, the yeah. Pit. That brings us to The Hare and Tortoise, which was a 1973 release designed by David Parlett and published by Waddington. This was actually released as Hare and the Hedgehog in Germany. Yes, probably the best known version is the Ravensburger Hasse und die Gell. Now I'm curious to see if that fable actually featured a hedgehog in German. Well, but the tortoise and the hare is an Aesop's fable, right? Yeah, it's it's yeah. a real oldie. It's funny because Frank's notes here say that this is a well-known, diceless racing game. I've never heard, seen, nor even knew of the existence of this game. It's well-known among people who were playing board games before they were popular, he says, pushing his glasses up on his nose. <laughs> It was one of the Euros that came over in kind of the first wave before board games really became big in the U.S. 
I had heard of it. I think I played it once. The rules seem pretty straightforward, so I think what's interesting is having kind of read through them and looked at it, this game has a fuel economy, as you have to pay for each of your moves moving forward, and you usually do that through paying carrots. And there's a big old chart that says, like, if you're going to move X number of spaces, you have to pay X number of carrots, and it gets exponentially larger as you yeah, go. Yeah, it is a huge exponential growth in terms of how many spaces you move with carrot pays. Alternatively, you can move backwards to the last tortoise, or I suppose in some case, hedgehog space, which is not something you would necessarily think you would want to do in a racing game, except that when you begin your turn, if you are on a numbered space that matches your position on the game board, you get extra carrots. So by moving backwards on your turn, you might knock somebody else out of position, denying them of carrots. Well, also, you get a linear number of carrots based on the number of spaces you move backwards. Yes, I should say that the number that you get for starting on a numbered turn is a multiple of 10 equal to your position. So if you're in fifth place and you're in a number, you're going to get 50 carats, which I can't tell just by reading the rules, but seems like a lot. Oh, no, you can, you know, burn 200 carats going forward in one turn easily. I'm, I'm sorry, you're chewing them. You're a rabbit, you see. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you're a rabbit burning, that is eating yeah. 200 carats. Well, they're like the little baby carrots. Ah, yeah, yeah. Okay. If I remember correctly, you need to use up all your carrots, or almost all your carrots, by the time you get to the end. You can't just stock up a ton of carrots and have them all at the end. Yeah, there's a limit on how many carrots you can have at the end. The first person to cross the finish line can only have 10 or fewer carrots. 20 for second, so on and so forth. But the other limiting factor here is that each player also has a number of lettuce that they have to chew as you're going through the race, because you cannot finish if you have lettuce. Like, you just can't. It's just so interesting to me, because if you look at the game board, it's just sort of this straight line of squares that have hares and tortoises and carrots and lettuce and some numbers. And it doesn't look like anything, but there's so much calculation and back and forth going on. It's one of those games that's a lot deeper than it looks. You know, it's not something I would want to play all the time, but there is a surprising level of complexity in this game. Yeah, and it looks like Uncle Wiggly. So when you put it out, people are like, what? No, no. This looks dumb. Yeah. It's very innocent and child-friendly. So the hare and the hedgehog was from Grimm's Fairy Tales, which is why it is popular in Germany. That would Uh, make sense. The hare and the tortoise was always from Aesop's. They're very similar stories, but unsurprisingly in Grimm's Fairy Tales, the hare dies. They die and get eaten, yes. (laughs) The hare dies because he ran so hard trying to catch up. But wait, 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 wait. If there is one thing I know about hedgehogs, it is that they are incredibly fast and also blue. And also have shoes. (laughs) Thus it happened that the hedgehog ran the hare to death on Buck's Tide Hearth. And since that time, no one has agreed to enter a race with the hedgehog. (laughs) Oh my god, is this the origin of Sonic the Hedgehog? I feel like we've all learned something here today. Yes, we have. Never challenge a hedgehog to a race. Never go up against a hedgehog when death is on the line. (laughs) So, we haven't seen many Wolfgang Kramer games, which is sad. Because he's Wolfgang Kramer, incredibly prolific designer. But he gave the world Nicky Lauda's Formal One in 1980, 
published by Altenberger Spielkarten, also known as ASS, which... Uh, uh, yeah, unfortunate yeah, multilingual acronyms. <laughs> True. This is a game that begat a whole bunch of games. We saw it as Daytona 500. There was a Brickyard game by Mayfair. We've got Top Race, again, by Altenberger Spielkarten. And finally, Downforce, which is by Restoration Games, which is a pretty faithful take on Top Race, redoing that and adding some individual player powers. In this racing game, you've got choke points. A track varies from one to three or four spaces wide, and there are six cars. And then you've got a card, which lists a whole bunch of cars. And basically, when you play your card, starting at the top of your little list of cars, you move that car however many spaces is listed next to it. So you can move, you know, one to four or five cars each move. Trick is, if there's something in front of you that keeps you from moving, you just ignore the rest of those spaces. And cleverly, there aren't a lot of extra spaces on the cards compared to the length of the track. So some cars don't quite finish. And of course, the number of spaces you burn for a car that you don't like will basically keep that car from moving very quickly, especially toward the end of the race. So it leads to a fair number of lead changes. You go through a number of races with an auction at the start, so you can actually choose your car, hopefully one that your cards have a lot of influence over. The top race and downforce also add betting rules where you're allowed to place bets on who you think will win. Basically, there are some bands across the track, and at certain parts you can basically take out almost paramutual style betting on who will be first at each of those points. Top Race, since it was Altenberger Spielkarten, came with dollars that just read top-ass dollars. <laughs> just Which never, so never gets old. <laughs> when I went to Essen a few years back, walking in the deals room, and there's a gigantic banner over one corner of the room that just says ass. <laughs> they had all their stuff. That's a game that just kept going. There's a good six editions. I've got four or five of them. Daytona <laughs> 500 might be the best known because that was Milton Bradley. Downforce seemed to be a really big hit when it came back through a couple of years ago. All right, I have a proposition for you guys. Why bother racing when you can just destroy your competitors? Yes. Leave them as flaming wrecks. Yeah, the lamentation of their mechanics. <laughs> I, I mean, you win if you're the only racer, right? Exactly. Sure, by definition. I feel like there's an implied exclamation point on this title, but this is Thunder Road from 1986 from our friends at Milton Bradley, designed by Jim Kiefer. I feel like I personally have failed as a child of the 80s, having never played this game. Because you have. It screams all the things that I'd love. Like, clearly, whoever designed this had just finished watching The Road Warrior. In this game, you have a team of three cars and a helicopter. Well, that, <laughs> that statement alone is just spectacular. <laughs> You're charging down this game board. You have two of them that slot together. And your goal is either to destroy all your competitors or outrace them where they end up getting destroyed if you outstrip them, right? So you basically have the switch and link game board where basically you have two pieces that fit together. And as the lead car leaves the front piece, the one that's up in the front, as they leave that, the piece in the back gets removed and placed in front of it, thereby wrecking all the cars that were on the back-facing piece. Keep up or get blowed up. So if I'm understanding correctly, you're not just racing each other and destroying each other. You're also outracing the avalanche that's right behind you? Uh, no, it's probably the, the nothing from the uh, never-ending stories yeah. just chasing yeah. you. Sure, sure. But yeah, like they went all out on this. Like They had screws of multicolored cars that you would assemble straight out of Mad Max. They even have separate vehicles to represent the wrecks themselves that you mm -hmm. leave flipped over on the board as you annihilate your competition. It's, it's amazing. I really wish I'd played this.
The box art on this thing, it is pure 80s. Dramatic action scene of like a car exploding in the back, one being driven off the road, one that's literally getting past the border of their Milton Bradley logo because it's so extreme. It's, it's great. I love it. That is definitely a product of its time. <laughs> uh, you know, I have it. We still play it. <laughs> uh, it's a very simple game. You're tracking hit points on cars. You're rolling, targeting your hit. I think you've got missile rules and uh, still fun. It's also about 20 minutes and the joy of when you cross that first board and dump half the track <laughs> just off. And yes, you do have to pick up the entire board and just dump everything off. That's pretty much required. This is sort of the epitome of Ameritrash. Chuck a bunch of dice and blow stuff up. And a note to Restoration Games, we do want a new Rob Davio version of this, so, <laughs> so fix that. So on to more conflict viciousness. One game stands out mostly because of its title, the really nasty horse racing game. That is an apt title for sure. 1989, uh, British publisher Upstarts and designer Simon Nock. This is evil in a box. I mean, it's horse racing, but even better, it's steeplechase racing. You're given horses at the start of the race. You have a bunch of cards. You're rolling your dice, moving your horse along, but it's a steeplechase game. So you're jumping over hedges and little rivers and fences. Each time you attempt to jump one of those, there are a number of extra event cards which are stuffed in your hand, and you can happily get a faller card, which when someone tries to jump this particular hedge, they fall. They die. Horses out of the race. <laughs> wow. No defense, nothing. Some of them have die rolls involved. Some of them will slow somebody down, remove pips from their die, and basically kind of really vicious take that card stuck in the game. Plus, you're allowed to move your horse however you want, and you do bet on all the horses. You get a decent amount of money for being first, second, or third, and we win, place, or show. But when you get toward the end, you could happily just start moving your horse sideways because you didn't bet anything on it. You had a huge bet on the second place horse. And so it actually creates some really vicious, you did that kind of uh, evil. How very dare you. Oh, yeah. So what is the race iteration on this one? Like, how long does it take to complete? Because I've not played this. I've played a similar game in Winner's Circle. Really Nasty's long. It's a couple hours, and I think you're doing six races. Okay. It's a little too long, and so it's better remembered as the classic and the, the incredible arbitrary and viciousness of the cards. Winner's Circle and Longshot are better horse racing games. They have betting, mm -hmm. and I go back and forth on which of those I prefer. Mike, do you want to talk to the kids about flicking? Yeah, so our next game is Avis or Caraband. Nailed it. But I better know it as Pitch Car, which is a racing game meets a dexterity game. This game was uh, originally released in 1995 and designed by Jean de Powell. Jean de Powell. Nailed it. And was originally published by Goldseeber Spiel. Each of your pieces are these little pucks on a relatively large track. I mean, it probably is a dining room table game more than anything, although I'm sure it was meant to be played on the floor, but who, who wants to do that? You are basically taking turns flicking your puck, aka car, around the track, and if you flick it off the track, you get a penalty and have to go back to, I think, the last place that you fell off. This was a game that, when I first played it, we mostly just made up our own 
BS rules and went with it. I don't think I've ever actually played it by sitting down and reading the rules. It allows for a lot of customization on what your track looks like because it's modular track pieces that all fit together via puzzle connectors. So like you can make it just do like a figure eight, you can put ramps, you can even put jumps that you have to like ramp over where there just is no board. And most importantly, you can put guardrails on only one side of the track. So there's a lot of scope for falling off the track. This one's a little weird because the original version isn't even on the Geek. Aves was a fixed board that he sold, I think, like 25 at Essen. Huh. Same basic rules. I think one of the other things about this game is it has about a million expansions, which just add on different types of track that you can modular in. I think my favorite one is Pitch Car Expansion 7, The Loop. <laughs> I've never actually seen it. I didn't even know it existed, but it is, in fact, just a pitch car loop-de-loop thing, which I don't think I could flick one of those cars with enough force to actually get through a loop. I'm honestly surprised that the first time I ever saw a dexterity racing game like this was in 1995. There's not much to say about Pitch Car because it literally is just who can flick their car across the finish line first. It's one of those things that seems so obvious, and yet no one built this and put it in a box until the 90s. One that we've kind of referenced before and is one of the ones that I enjoy is what originally came out as Turf Horse Racing by the legendary Rainer Knizia and originally published by Gibsons. This has been variously updated and re-released over the years as Royal Turf and then Winner's Circle, which is probably where it's best known. Basically, this is a game where you have a bunch of horses that are going around a track, and there are dice that have three of one symbol on them and one each of three other symbols on them. And each horse moves a different number depending on what symbol they have. The most common symbol is going to be somewhere between one and seven spaces. And then the other ones vary wildly. You know, it's like if you roll the saddle, this one horse might move two spaces and the other one might move 17. It's got some really high numbers. And you don't have a particular horse that is yours. At the start of the game, you're basically betting on who you think will come first, come second, come last. And then each turn, you roll a die and... Whoever's turn it is chooses one of the horses that hasn't moved yet this turn and moves it the appropriate number of spaces. So depending on what you roll, you may be doing a huge move for a horse that you've bet on, or you may take a horse that you don't want to win and make sure it just moves one space. It's another one where you're basically trying to conduct various shenanigans to make sure that the order of finish is the way you want it to be. It is not a complicated game, but I always remember having a good time with it because you're also trying to figure out where other people have bet so you can make sure that nobody gets too much ahead. I think those large disparities in movement actually contribute a lot to how good this game is because mm -hmm. moving 20 spaces could easily put a horse that is well in last place into first. And it can just have such a drastic change on the state of the game in a single move that it creates all sorts of feelings among players. <laughs> yes, there are definitely feelings involved in this game. Mathematically, all the horses quote-unquote average speed works out to be the same but like you say it's just amazing the stuff you can have done with the right role at the right time or the wrong role at the right time one thing that was weird about turf horse racing gibson's published it in kind of this say five by seven by five box matte black with just gold lettering 
it almost looked like something you'd buy at Mori Luggage or something. <laughs> there was another game in that series called Formula Motor Racing, also published in 1995. Same series, same designer, because Reiner Knizia pretty much designed everything in the mid-90s. <laughs> and this one did a kind of interesting thing in that you didn't have a board. You had a bunch of cards and you had cars. And everyone got two race cars of the same color. And at the end of the race, you got points for just how far up you were in the line. And most of the cards consisted of switching, swapping, moving up or down places. And you got a pretty fixed deck of cards, which determined, you know, how far you could move up or when you could move up with some counters that made those cards fail. A very, very simple game. But it added this idea of you don't need a board. It's only really the position of cars that matters. Yeah, that kind of blew my mind a little bit when I first played it, because you, all you really need to know is what order you're in. So the track can be as arbitrarily large as you imagine it to be. You're just tracking who's first, who's last. Yeah. And in the same year, as kind of a parallel development, we got the McGartland Stock Car Racing Championship card game designed by McGartland. He took it to a whole new level. When you say McGartlin, it looks like the designers were actually Michael Garten and John McLaughlin, so they just kind of stuffed their names together. Oh, wow. My bad, yes. But um, this game, everyone has their own deck, and you get a track deck that determines limits on how fast you can move, etc. And each track deck is different depending on what you're racing. When you want to try to pass a card, you play a card, possibly more cards, and your opponent, who's trying not to be passed, gets to play defense cards, and then you rate how much total speed you play to see whether you can pass or not. The weird thing about the stock car racing game is you never reshuffle your deck. You run out of cards. That's it. Oh. Okay. With everyone having the same deck, and there's a little bit of a survival thing. But also the uh, card deck determines how many laps. Say you're running a 500-lap race, you might turn up an event card that says 26 laps. And so you move lap counter 26 up, and you actually end the race at the 500th lap. So you don't quite know how long that race is going to be. Some will be shorter, some will be longer, and some people might run out of cards. Some people will burn all their really good cards trying to pass and failing. Once you start knowing some of the decks and tracks, it is a really intense, tricky, difficult game. And learning when to pass and having a good idea of when that person's weak enough to try to pass successfully is tricky. Let's continue with uh, car racing, moving into Formula Day, which was released in 1997, published by Ludelier, designed by Laurent Lavleur and Eric Randall. So in Formula Day, in essence, you select a speed that you're going at the start of the game, and that determines a die or number of dice that you roll, and that indicates how many spaces you move. And on your turn, you can kind of shift up or shift down, depending on if you're going into a turn or if you've got a big straightaway. And there are spaces on the board that have, like, speed checks that if you're moving too many spaces over those, you take damage or have to slow down or take various penalties. In the original, at least, it's not speed. You have to spend so many turns in that turn. So in this case, if it's a one turn, you have to end in one of the spaces in that turn. Right, and so if you're going too fast, you don't do that thing instead, and it's not great for you. Yeah, this is one of the first big race games I was aware of when I was getting into board games. I just remember saying, man, you use a D20. That is so random, because I knew even then that I was terrible at rolling dice, so this was not a game for me. And no, they're custom D20s and D30s. I know that now. (laughs) 
I think this game tried to go for that more simulation approach. It's interesting that they try to replicate the whole like gear shifting. But also they published like every Formula One track as a separate board. Oh yeah, there's and dozens. You can buy of dozens and dozens. And even the ones that I don't think they got to were basically created by fans. So you can get everything until they started with the Formula D lighter, newer versions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the only version I've actually played of either of these. And my friends, Chev and Anthony, always play the tournament in uh, Gen Con every year. And it's always fun listening to which one of them got wrecked first. <laughs> <laughs> Is there much of a difference between Formula Day and Formula D, just like play-wise? I think D adds an option for having characters with special abilities. I don't think that's represented in Day. Other than that, it's functionally the same. Like It has nicer components, like the little dashboards for the changing of gears is pretty sweet in the Formula D version. Well, player powers, Mike. We know you love that. Mm -hmm. I mean, better with than without, that's for Mm -hmm. sure. I remember there was one, uh, Courtney was playing a driver who had a once-per-game ability to throw his radio at an opponent to damage their car. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure that's based on a thing that actually happened in a Formula One race at some point, but I have no idea what it is. I don't know what the crossover is in this podcast audience between board gamers and Formula One fans, but if somebody knows the story behind that, let us know. The next one we had is a slightly unusual theme for racing games. Driving down the Mississippi and picking up chicks. Yep, paddle wheel steamboats, absolutely. This is Mississippi Queen from 1997, published by Gold Superspiel and Rio Grande in the U.S., designed by Werner Hodel. This was a Spiel des Jahres winner and a really nicely produced game. It actually got a prize for best written rules, which I didn't even know was a prize, but I am glad it is because that kind of thing is important to me. Did um, Space Alert win best written rules? Cause, I, uh, I certainly hope so, otherwise not, it's a travesty. big problem <laughs> with this wrong. entire category. Exactly. I am outraged. But yeah, this is a game about racing paddle wheel steamboats. It's fairly simple on the surface. Basically, you're on a, a modular hex board. You start in one space, and when someone gets to the edge of the board, you reveal what the next stretch of river looks like. You have two little dials on your little plastic steamboat, one of which tracks your current speed, and one tracks how much coal you have. And you can make, I think, one turn for free and one speed change up or down per turn for free. Anything you do other than that requires you to spend coal. You can get extra points by picking up some southern bells from the docks that you'll see. Actually required to pick up two southern bells. Oh, yeah, you're right. Paddle wheelers can push each other, which is a thing I don't think happened too much historically, but happens an awful lot in the game. You can push somebody onto an unexplored tile, and they may wind up facing entirely the wrong way. You can't push somebody onto an island. If you ever run aground, you're done. But basically, it's a pretty simple game. It's got very pretty components. It's, I think, one of the first hex-based race games we've talked about, although there certainly have been others. I think this is one of the first modern board games I bought with my own money. I haven't played it in a long time, but I would happily play it again, because I just remember it being fun. The Essen Feather Award, that is the award that Mississippi Queen won. Dark Tower won in 1982. Wow, that's fascinating. The Essen Feather is an award given to games with well-written rules, as it is felt that too many good games were spoiled by incomprehensible rules. That is definitely true. The trophy is a brass goose quill inkwell on a chessboard. I also love the entry for 1989. No game was found worthy of the award. (laughs) You guys need to pick up your game. Hey, let's face it. If we're going to complain about rules, we got to award the good, right? Absolutely. I'm in favor of this award. So, Brian, in the far past, and by I mean 2002, 
<laughs> Z-Man Games heard you say that Mississippi Queen had an unusual theme and looked at you and said, hold my beer, and then released Magical Athlete. Published by Z-Man Games, designed by Taishi Ishada. And it is a racing game where you're all on foot, and you're all random mystical creatures. Like, one of you might be a troll. One of you might be a necromancer. One of you might be a siren, or a centaur, or Cupid, or a gladiator. And ultimately, this game is a roll and move. You roll dice. But it is so much more. And you move forward. But each of your characters has a special ability. For example, the merchant. On your turn, instead of rolling, you just exchange places with another character of your choice. <laughs> That's your turn. This game is a giant bag of random. And it is hilarious. It is hilarious. One of the things I find really interesting about it is that the game is, I think, four or five races. And at the start, you basically draft your team. And each race, you decide which of your characters you're going to play. And each one can only do one race, I think. Yeah, I think you draft one more than you need in total. It's crazy anime nonsense, and I love it. Structurally, the game is super simple. Literally, the track is a straight line that's 30 spaces long, and the first one to get to the end wins. Mm. It's the crazy interaction of all the special powers that makes it interesting. There are almost no choices other than which guy to run, which race. And that's generally a simultaneous choice, so it's not that deep. It's like, oh, hey, I move past you, and that means that I then move three spaces forward because of my ability. And the other person's like, well, whenever you activate an ability, I do something. Yeah, there's weird chain reactions of events going on. I imported the Japan brand version, one of the early Japanese ones, and kind of looked at the rules. And when I brought it to the table, I'm going, guys, I don't know if this is like the worst game ever or the best. I honestly can't tell. Yeah, we picked it... the best and then made Zev play it. So, <laughs> And then he published it. So, Yeah. You have to have the right group. This is not a highly complex and thinky game, but it's a lot of fun. And if you go on the Geek, there are uh, literally hundreds of custom characters that people have come up with. So you can be as arbitrarily weird and crazy with it as you want. I've heard good things about this one for years. I've just never had an opportunity to play it. It's super cute. One of the nice things, it's very light. You can break it out player quick couple rounds and then just be done there's not a lot of thinking you roll some dice you move a guy forward you all do crazy garbage because that's all your powers and off you go so moving on from a foot race let's go to power boats that's a nice and american idea there so the name of the game is power boats and you're really just trying to tool around getting past buoys in a proper order and trying to be the first person to do it this game came out in 2008 by Kuali. oh uh, yeah they're dutch Oh, okay. Designed by, uh, oh boy, Korn Van Moorsel. <laughs> and what's interesting about this game is since you're you're driving around in boats, they try to come up with a way of modeling the fact that you still have some momentum when you're going with your boat. And this is, I think, a first for me. This is a game that requires three-sided dice, which look real weird. Those dice freak me out every time I look at them. <laughs> oh, yeah. They look like someone just grabbed Play-Doh and kind of mushed it and then put numbers on it. Roll them, and they determine how far you're going to move. What makes this game interesting is that between turns, you can retain the values on those dice, or you can modify them up or down, or you can re-roll some. The reason you want to do that is you want to get past the buoys, you want to not crash into islands, and you need to be able to mitigate how far you're going. If you go too far, you start to damage your boat, which, if you do too much damage, I think just destroys it entirely, taking you out of the race. Yeah, it's a surprisingly cramped little board. You wind up with a lot of people going in crazy different directions. You still have to go around the buoys in a certain direction, in mm -hmm. a certain order to finish. 
This is one that for a long time at the Oasis of Fun, Stephen Carlberg would have out every year. And that's where I was first exposed to it. It's very pretty. It has a big board presence. It's worth noting it's another hex-based map as well. This and Formula Day have the nice thing where you're rolling dice for your movement, but you're forced to move the full movement of your dice regardless of how much pain that's going to cause you, whether you slam into something and lose dice or whatever. Formula Day, of course, you can hit the car in front of you. Or no, you have to to use brakeware to slam on your brakes and just chew through your brakeware in Formula Day. This one, no, you just crash into things because there's no brakes on the lake. (laughs) (laughs) Ten years after the original one came out, uh, the same designer and the same company came out with a game called Power Ships, where it's all taking place in space. Functionally, it works the same as far as I can tell. Looks like they added a little bit more to it where you have spaces that give you power-ups, where it'll increase your movement, increase your ability to turn, allow you to go above or below obstacles. And I think with the damage, it now makes it so it reduces the maximum number of dice that you can have in your dice pool. Changed it up a little bit, but everything else looks much the same. I'm looking at BGG, and apparently somebody has made a retheme of it for Dune, Worm Racers. Oh God, why would you do that? I don't know, but it looks hilarious. <laughs> Why wouldn't you do that? Jeez. Yeah, I, <laughs> well, I didn't realize Power Ships was a thing. I might have to look at picking that up because I remember this as being a fun game. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Quali. A lot of their games are simple, slightly abstract, but generally of incredibly high quality, simple to teach, and kind of brilliant in a lot of ways. So our last game is going to be Reiner Knizia again because he's a thing. <laughs> this is from, all the way from 2017 when I think we stopped really seeing his name every third game. It's called The Quest for El Dorado, and it's more of an open field racing game. You're racing archaeologists for, oh, whatever. It's a really silly theme. Well, I mean, Reiner Knizzi is always known for his highly detailed and accurate theming, right? Yeah, totally. In this case, though, you basically get a Mississippi Queen-style setup of big hexagonal boards filled with little hexagons. And the fact that it has hexagons means that I'm going to pay attention to it. But in this case, all the hexagons have spaces that represent different types of terrain. And you have a deck of cards that represent the same types of terrain. Basically, on your turn, you play cards matching the space you want to move into, and you get to move into that next space. You can move as many spaces as you can manage with your hand. And then you throw the rest of the cards away, and then you get to buy a new card which goes into your deck because this is a deck builder. And so you're constantly building up your deck, looking at the previous terrain and what kind of path you can take through this, and tailoring or removing cards from your deck to help you make that. It allows you to keep like two cards in your hand for a future turn, which helps. As well, there are a lot of special cards that can be used, you know, wilds or giant wilds or just one-shots that might help you get across special spaces. Because there are some spaces, like you can cut corners, but you may have to play, you know, four gold cards, which getting four gold cards in your hand might be really hard Mm -hmm. to do some of those shorter cuts. So it's got kind of an Elfin Roads thing. Exactly. And about that Elfin Road, I got an email because, you know, Alan Moon's gathering, and so I've known Alan Moon for a while, that he was looking for copies and details on a game called Creature Castle. Because this game called Creature Castle was done as, I think, the Barnabas Collins game, or no, the Dark Shadows game. I'm corrected by Sandy, if you heard that background. (laughs) Thanks, Sandy. As well as Karten Rally in Germany. And basically, this was an old game where you got a standard deck of cards, and to move into the next space, you had to play a card matching the suit, or be a face card, or play a card that was 5 to 10 in order to move into the next space. And so spaces overlapped in terms of 
how you could move into that space. And so that whole idea of playing a card to move into a terrain space is all the way back before Alan Moon from, well, 1975, Creature Castle. And really, it's a great kids game, but it's a little easy. But of course, cards have multiple uses because a six of spades is both a a six to ten card as well as a spade, as well as a black card. She's pointing out that Creature Castle only had suits like spiders and snakes and things, but ultimately it comes down to a standard 52-card deck. Sure, but honestly, I would get it just to have a deck where the suits are snakes, spiders, scorpions, and bats. Yeah, totally. But yeah, Quest for Elder Auto is a really good game. I think it was a Spiel des Jahres nominee, and totally worth it, especially if you like deck builders. This one's really simple, and the racing theme gives it a good feel that's kind of missing from the point salad. Okay, when do I turn my engine into starting to get points? Nah, in this one, you're just racing straight out. It's still pretty light. When we were going through this list, it's surprising how many games that we've talked about in other contexts are actually, when you come down to it, race games, you know, even though we don't think of them that way. I mean, Robo Rally is a race game. Absolutely. There's so much other stuff going on that we don't tend to think of it as that, but I mean, that's functionally what it is. Anything where you're trying to be the first person to get to X thing is a race game. So, so technically, Nexus Ops is a race game. Well, no, Nexus Ops is not a race game, but technically, you know, it's first to 10. Anything yeah. with a score total that's a destination. So that makes Settlers of Catan a race game, which I am uncomfortable with. <laughs> yeah. Agreed. <laughs> yeah, well, we're not going there. Is Ricochet Robot a race game because you're trying to be the first one to figure out a certain thing? That way lies madness. Then you're saying Awkward Guess is a race game. Sure, Clue is a race game, you know? <laughs> All games are race games, is what we're saying. You know what is oddly missing from this list of games we covered? Cooperative race games. Let me think. We didn't talk about them today, but they're certainly like bicycle racing games where you've got the pack and there are certain people are drafting for the guy who's going to do the big push. You could certainly do that in sort of a team format. I don't know how you'd make it interesting. I mean, I think that's the problem with racing games is like there needs to be an inherent villain in a racing game. <laughs> and it's hard to have an inherent villain in a racing game unless you have a bunch of robot controlled racers in some way. Yeah, there is an interesting game that came out called Wacky Racers, I think last year. Uh, is it based on the cartoon series? Exactly. That <laughs> is my childhood right there. And it doesn't look that good, uh, except the miniatures, which, oh my god, are amazing. Sure, that's a game that you buy for the nostalgia. Wait a minute, the wait a minute. Yeah, they did pre Is that the series that had Penelope Pit Stop? Yep. Yes, absolutely. Yep, absolutely. You cannot play Dick Dastardly and Mudley, but they kind of as their own thing start throwing events at the players and... That's how they represent their villain for that. But no, in particular, one player has to win that race. This is a a genre that's been going for, you know, 5,000 years, and we're still coming up with some new clever stuff to do. Of course, we're guessing you probably have some favorite race games that we have ignored. Shame on us. You should tell us how wrong we are on uh, Facebook or Twitter or any of those social media things, which are now our primary way of interacting with other human beings. That's why I'm so sad all the time. Okay, that makes sense. Well, I mean, you at least have dogs and another person in your house. But no, I'm not going to get bitter and malt, and we shall overcome. Besides, I'm an introvert. I love this stuff. But anyway, hopefully this episode has given you folks a chance to 
think about brighter times and maybe talk about some games that you might remember fondly or might want to pick up in the future. As always, we are happy to hear your input on any of the aforementioned social media items with our links in the show notes. We're always happy to get reviews on iTunes and any other commentary suggestions for further episodes. We're starting to get pretty deeply into the, the poll answers here, so if there's a topic you really want us to talk about, certainly let us know and we'll get it on the poll. We had a suggestion at one point for an episode on two-player games. Um, which I think is just too broad. That was from a friend of the show, Christopher, by the way, so thanks for mentioning it, Chris, even though we're probably not going to do that. We have to narrow that down to something really specific. You've probably figured out by now that basically we try and find a theme that is going to be comparatively popular, and then we mostly use it to talk about games we like. So don't feel like you have to be too precise about it. Let us know what you want to hear, and we'll be happy to do it, because we are planning to keep doing this until civilization completely breaks down and we have to kill each other for food. Thanks for listening, everybody, and like I said, unless everything completely breaks down, we'll be back talking to you next month. Bye, everybody. Bye. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of The Ascent of Board Games, which is protected by the Creative Commons license. Opening and closing music is Evening Melodrama by Kevin MacLeod via Incompetech.com. Full details can be found at AscentOfBoardGames.com. Please share, like, subscribe, review, and comment on this podcast. And thank you for listening. And I just lost where the connection was. I had everything queued up so I could sound all professional, and now that's not a thing that I can do. I mean, there you're just going to cut all this anyway, so it's I mean, matter. yes, obviously, but I want you guys to think I'm smart, which is probably a lost cause.